The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks looking to start the week off in the red. After Friday's massive sell-off, investors now bracing for a possible one-two punch ahead of Thursday's big inflation report. The Bank of England steps in again to soothe sinking sentiment in the region as its massive bond buying program gets set to end. China's chip sector getting hit hard overnight as the industry grapples with surging geopolitical risk. The names you need to be watching coming up ahead. Plus, a worldwide exchange exclusive conversation with Saudi Crown Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman as he makes the case for last week's historic OPEC plus oil output cut. And then later on, a developing story in Ukraine as Russia once again targets its capital city of Kyiv in an apparent retaliation. It's Monday, October 10th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off your Monday morning with U.S. equity futures, as I alluded to, in the red right now, but modestly so. You can see here the Dow is implied lower by just about 110 points, the S&P lower by 19, and the Nasdaq down by about 65. All of this after Friday's broad-based sell-off that saw the Dow shed more than 600 points to close down more than 2% on the day, as you can see in this time lapse here. Worse now for the broader S&P 500, which ended the day down nearly 3% on the session, and the Nasdaq down nearly 4%. Bond markets are closed for the federal holiday today, but a quick check on the last trade that we saw over the course of Friday's session. The yield right now for the 10-year, 3.89%. The two-year note yield, 4.31%. The 30-year long bond, just a hair below 3.85%. And energy prices. Oil is still trading above 90 bucks a barrel, at least for the time being. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI prices, $92.02. That's down two-thirds of 1%. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, off two-thirds of 1% as well, $97.25 there. Let's now go worldwide. Around the world, China back open for trading after a week-long market holiday. But Japan, South Korea, Taiwan all closed today. So the red there tells a partial story, but the sentiment, generally speaking, is still negative. If we spin that globe around to what's happening now with the early trade in Europe, you can see mostly red over there as well. The FTSE 100 down about two thirds of one percent in the UK. The CAC in France down about three quarters of one percent. But the German DAX clinging on to just very, very marginal gains to the upside. The only real speck of green that you can see on that European continent right now. Let's stick with a trade for Europe for the moment and a developing story this morning as the Bank of England announces new measures this morning to ease investor anxiety. Jumana Bersetti joins us now from our London newsroom with the latest there. And Jumana, the Bank of England has now been the epicenter of a lot of the market and economic volatility in the, in the region. What is now happening here 
with the bond buying program. That's right. So the Bank of England today has said it stands ready to increase its gold purchases under this emergency intervention launched late last month on September 28th amid the market turmoil. Now, the central bank raised the maximum limit for today's gilt operation to £10 billion from £5 billion previously. And they also launched a temporary collateral repo facility to help lenders ease liquidity strains facing their LDI investment funds, which are basically the funds associated with the pension fund community. This is a segment of the UK market we've been watching very closely, not least because they own about one trillion pounds worth of gilts and UK corporate bonds. And in an environment where yields started rising very, very quickly, many of these pension funds started receiving margin calls. They were unable to sell their gilts quickly enough, which sort of led to this doom loop and led to the Bank of England intervening. One thing I want to say, though, is when they announced the program on September the 28th, it was a 13-day program with uh, an ability to buy up to five billion pounds a day. They've only bought about 3.7 billion in five days total. So I guess the Bank of England had been overestimating how much demand they would be getting into these auctions. That being said, they did come out with further measures today. Now, the reaction in gilts, as you can see, has been pretty negative across the board. All of these gilts are trading about five to ten basis points higher. The 10-year gilt back almost at 4.3 percentage points again. So about 30 basis points higher from where we reached uh, after they announced the intervention program. As for the pound, well, doing what it has been doing uh, for the past couple of months now and resuming its downtrend, we've got the pound about, uh, well, today about almost a tenth of a percentage point weaker, but very close to breaking through 110 on the downside. And uh, clearly some of that is on back of the strength in the U.S. dollar, but certainly the outlook for the U.K. is still very bumpy, Dom. All right, Giamana Bersetti live in London with the latest there on the U.K. and the Bank of England. Thank you very much. Let's get a check on some of this morning's other top stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good Monday morning, Silvana. Good Monday morning to you, Dumwell. Shares of China-based semiconductor makers getting hit hard in overseas trading today. On the back of that announcement by the Biden administration Friday of new export rules on chips, the rules restrict the sale of semiconductors made with U.S. technology unless vendors obtain a special export license. The move by the White House is aimed at slowing Beijing's technological and military advances. Following Friday's announcement, semi-stocks here in the U.S. seeing steep drops, with the iShares semi-ETF falling 6%. Now, sticking with China, Tesla notching a new record for monthly sales there. The EV maker selling more than 83,000 vehicles there in September, an 8% jump from August. The uptick in sales coming amid easing supply chain issues for Tesla in China, following COVID lockdowns in Shanghai and upgrades at its production facility there earlier this year. China's BYD continues to lead China's EV market with more than 200,000 vehicles sold last month. And shareholders of the SPAC looking to take former President Trump's social media platform public are set to vote on a potential extension to complete a merger between the two. That vote will decide whether to push that deadline for digital world acquisition and Trump Media and Technology Group to September of next year. A similar vote last month failed to get the necessary 65 percent investor support to finalize the deal, Dom. All right. Silvana Hanau with the latest there on the headlines. Thank you very much. Back on Wall Street, investors waking up with a case of whiplash following last week's massive two-day relief rally, followed by three straight days worth of losses. Still, the major averages posting their first positive week over the past four. Now, it's a very busy week ahead with two big reports on, yes, inflation, producer and consumer prices, PPI and CPI. We may also hear more about the impact rising interest rates 
and the strong dollar is having on corporate earnings with results due from PepsiCo, Delta Airlines, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo. You get the idea. It's the kickoff to earnings season yet again. Let's talk more about all of this with Kamal Batia, Chief Operating Officer, Principal Asset Management, formerly known as Principal Financial Group. Uh, I mean, Kamal, I, I guess the, the big question right now is markets have seemingly tried to price in all of the negativity right now, but it doesn't seem to be stopping. What's going to stop it? Will it be a PPI or CPI report or will it be corporate earnings that are going to come in maybe hypothetically better than expected? Good morning, Dominic. Good to be with you. I think the biggest change is, is the issue of inflation. It's, it's quite stubborn and it's permeated the economy. And I think from the Federal Reserve perspective, until inflation gets to a more manageable level, it's going to be an issue for the markets. They are reacting for, for more downside here with where the last CPI print was. And, and until that adjusts, there is going to be pressure on market returns. Uh, we have seen earlier this year where the PE multiples have adjusted. Uh, we await where the earnings are going to be. But given the pressure on the bond markets, it's probably going to be a lower earnings than higher earnings moving forward. All right. So so this is the, the general consensus right now. It's probably going to be no surprise because it's really the only thing we've, we've talked about over the last several weeks and months now, this idea that there's going to be an economic slowdown. Interest mm-hmm. rates are rising. Central banks are seemingly doing it coordinated wise, right, to kind of bring down inflation. Yep. So if all of this is known, when do we see a bottoming for the market? Probably you kind of look at recession kicking in second quarter of next year. The markets are probably going to look at a six month forward view. So not this year, but early next year, I think you should probably see in one queue bottoming for the marketplace. And that would probably start a process of an upward trend for a few years after that, Dominic. So I guess, so here's the question then. If it is going to be in that first part of next year, this bottoming mm-hmm. process that, you, that, you, that you're predicting, yep. what leads the way out of it? I think there are probably three areas in our view that lead out of it. It's probably going to be driven by by mid-cap equities, which seem to have the best valuation framework right now, not large-cap equities, which has gotten us to the market return so far. That would be one area to look closely at. The second area, which continues to be a good place to be, Dominic, but probably will accelerate further, would be real assets. Our view remains that inflation may stay high for a while. And in such an environment, you want asset classes that probably adjust to inflation sensitivity. So it probably would be mid-cap equities, uh, certain portions of the fixed income market and real assets. But that's probably where we would look. And then certainly infrastructure is probably one of the most interesting areas for not just the short term, but also long term as well. All right. Kamal Batia, principal, thank you very much. We appreciate it. When we come back on the show, oil coming off its biggest weekly gain since March. And the stocks that track the price of crude aren't behind it, so are not far behind it. We'll see if the energy sector rally still has some room to run. Plus, much more on the chip sector's massive dip and if China can overcome a growing U.S. blacklist. And later on, a live report from Ukraine after Russia takes aim at Kyiv at the city center for the first time in months. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. 
What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Energy stocks surging last week on the heels of that OPEC Plus decision to cut oil output by 2 million barrels a day. The S&P 500 energy sector climbing nearly 14 percent, its best week, by the way, since November of 2020. ExxonMobil and Chevron leading the charge with Exxon ending the week almost 15 percent higher for its best week since June of 2020. Joining me now to break it all down is Stuart Glickman, Deputy Research Director at CFRA Research. He specializes in looking at oil and gas companies. And Stuart, oil and gas, I wonder if the consensus trade upside potential is is now done. It, It was the big gainer over the course of 2021 into 2022, but we've seen it come off steeply with energy prices overall. So are there buys now created by this dip in oil prices? Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. So I, I think you're right. I think that um, there is still opportunity uh, to to make purchases in the energy space. Uh, from a valuation perspective, a lot of these names, E&Ps, even the integrateds like Exxon and Chevron, are trading at healthy discounts to historical forward average based on where we see 2023 results. And I think, you know, you look at a WTI probably in the $90 per barrel range, Next year, I still think there's a lot of opportunity that these stocks are not fully discounting in yet. All right. So so we're looking at some charts right now. I mean, ExxonMobil is massively up. It's a 60 plus percent gains over the course of this year to day period. I guess the consensus has been now for a while that oil and gas is going to do well, given what oil prices have done since the lows in the pandemic back in the spring of 2020. If that's the case, though, you mentioned E&P. You mentioned some of the other parts, the integrated oil, oil companies, oil services. Which ones are the most levered to oil prices? Which ones do we have to worry about when we see oil moving up or down? Yeah, so E&Ps are going to be the ones that have the most direct exposure, either up or down, depending on what oil prices do. Um, but keep in mind that, yes, energy is up a lot this year, but energy as a whole has been systematically underinvested in new supply for the better part of the last seven years. I think we're on very early innings of a new up cycle in energy. Uh, and I think that there is going to be a pretty significant opportunity for oil prices to stay elevated uh, probably through the rest of this decade. The big, the big wild card, if you will, is, is on the demand side, not on the supply side, I think. Okay, so if that's the case, if, if, we, if your prediction 
is for oil prices to remain elevated over the medium to longer term. And then you told me that oil exploration and production companies are more levered to higher prices. That implies that that's where I want to be upstream, so to speak, exploration and production. Where are the best bargains right now, given that that thesis, at least? Right. So on that thesis, you want names that do have that exposure to the upside. Uh, so take a name like a ConocoPhillips, for example, uh, ticker COP. We have a buy opinion or four stars view on Conoco. They have an awful lot of oil that comes from uh, from Europe and, and overseas markets, more Brent linked than WTI linked. Uh, and, as you know, unlike a lot of the U.S. shale players, which are, you know, let's say 100 uh, percent U.S. focused, uh, Conoco has an awful lot of overseas exposure. Brent prices probably hold up hold up better uh, than WTI do. There's always that 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 small premium between Brent and WTI. Uh, or take a name like EOG Resources. Uh, we have a strong buy or five stars opinion on them. Um, so those are some some of the uh, I guess the bigger uh, E and P names that we like. Other names that we like that have pretty healthy dividends. And actually, Conoco has a has a, f- a very strong dividend mostly variable uh, in, in 2022. But a similar name would be like a, a Pioneer Natural Resources, ticker PXD, um, also has very healthy variable dividend. You, you can probably get yields somewhere in the 10% range, which is pretty significant. Oh, massive yields and energy. Looking at some of the exploration and production names. Stuart Glickman at CFRA. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, still on deck for the show, a worldwide exchange exclusive with Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Abdulaziz bin Salman as he justifies OPEC's historic output cut. That conversation coming up next. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. Still to come on the show here. Let's check on the markets right now. We've seen some improvement over the course of the last few minutes here. The Dow is now implied lower by just about 55 points. The S&P down by about 12 and the Nasdaq up by 53. Remember, at the top of the show... We were looking at a Dow that was down roughly 110 points, so a little bit of improvement there. Now, if you take a look at what's happening with the laggards in the pre-market so far for the Dow, we're talking names like Procter & Gamble down 1%, roughly. Nike, Merck, Cisco Systems, and Home Depot, little traded right now, so we'll keep an eye on what's going on there. Well, now, we are breaking down the semiconductor sector sell-off, and what, if anything, China can do to overcome a growing U.S. blacklist. That conversation coming up. Keep it right here. We'll be back after this break. Investors gearing up for what could be another trading week that's busy as all heck on the back of Friday's jobs report fueled sell off key inflation data and the kickoff to earnings season all in focus right now. Futures pointing to some more pressure at the opening bell. The fallout continues over OPEC's decision to slash oil production, a key Biden administration official speaking out against the move. And our Brian Sullivan is standing by with what Saudi Arabia is telling him about the backlash. 
And then speaking of the Biden administration, ramping up its crackdown on China, targeting the semiconductor industry as shares in that sector take a big hit on the latest shot between Washington, D.C. and Beijing. It's Monday, October 10th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan this morning. Let's get right to how the markets are shaping up on the back of Friday's post-jobs report sell-off. Futures right now indicating a lower open, but not by much, at least for the time being. We'll call it stable compared to what happened on Friday. The Dow is implied lower by 58 points. The S&P down by roughly 13, and the Nasdaq implied lower by just about 54, 55 points. Joining me now to discuss further is Jason Hunter, Managing Director of J.P. Morgan Securities. He's their Managing Director of Technical Strategy. He looks at the charts for a living. Jason, good morning to you. What are the charts saying about whether there's a bottom in sight for this market? Oh, yeah. So for, for the equity market, we've cited over the last couple of weeks how, just how oversold the market had gotten during the time of the year that you'd expect weakness, which is usually September through the first week of October. Um, so our thinking is, you know, you saw an initial bounce ahead of payrolls report. The market was disappointed by the payrolls report. And the subsequent move in the fixed income markets, which showed a, a bit more of an aggressive move by the Fed in terms of expectations of, of terminal funds rate um, and those sort of things. So stocks now are, are pulling back to those levels. The good news is after a two day bounce, you don't alleviate those oversold conditions. So our thinking is still that in the 3500s, there's a large cluster of support and the market should put in a bottom ahead of a fourth quarter rally thereafter. All right. So, so if that's the case, you're looking at the S&P 500. And what the charts are kind of indicating there, we mentioned before that the Dow is kind of now back to where it was pre-pandemic in February of 2020. The S&P would have to go lower from here by about roughly 100 points to get to that same kind of level. Are we talking about a market now that's kind of grappling with this idea that we're not maybe that much better or worse off than we were back in February of 2020? Well, from our point of view, when you look at the supports on 3,500s, you know, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, that's where the market gapped out in November of 2020 when the headlines from the Pfizer trial were released um, and showed a, an effective vaccine. That's the period of time where you saw what initially was growth type and, and let's say quality earnings stories where you saw that transfer to more value and cyclicals. And the market got really excited about the prospects of the economy. Um, So from our point of view, that's an important psychological level, uh, along with all the other levels that sit in that area on the chart. Um, Not to mention, we're also watching a very tight relationship that's existed over the past year. Um, Once inflation really started to tick up in the fourth quarter of of 2021, you saw this tight relationship start to form between the expected terminal rate uh, for Fed funds and the S&P. If you look at that particular model and and the error tracking error of the S&P around it, 3,500 more or less is where you'd expect the market to go with what right now is priced to 450 terminal rate. So a lot of things are pricing to the same area, including what you had mentioned, kind of giving up all of the the COVID recovery excitement Um, and and the oversold conditions. Things seem to be lining up from our point of view that that suggests at the very least you'll see some sort of a position squeeze um, and rebound in the fourth quarter. It's hard to debate, Jason that interest rates are driving a lot of the downside volatility. You can see it every time there's any kind of an economic data point that implies more Fed tightening or more aggressive tightening. You see the markets sell off the way that they do. It's the proximate cause of all the downside that we're seeing right now. So take us through what you're seeing then in terms of where we could expect to see interest rates move. You mentioned the terminal rate for Fed funds. I'm looking at now maybe what the the two years going to be, what the 10 years going to be. 
How inverted yeah. does, does this get? So we'll start we'll start at, at the short end. And we've heard a number of, you know, what are, are perceived as hawkish Fed speakers over the last week or so, particularly around the payrolls report and leading up to it. Um, at least two of them that I could remember had mentioned 450 as kind of a landing spot on the tightening. And if you look at the forwards, um, which the two year note, you know, roughly implies, you know, is 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 up to that 450 level. Um, so if we're looking at the, the front end, we're, we're getting to let's call it peak hawkishness in a sense. Um, you know, assuming the Fed speakers do what they what they've said. Um, as we move further out on the curve, the ten year note has cheapened up to you know roughly the four percent area. On the chart, there's there's a couple of technical levels in that area. Um, you know, despite the fact that it's also a psychological nice big round number, four uh, percent. Um, and similarly to what we're seeing in the equity market, the deep oversold conditions, you're getting the same type of setup in, in fixed income, not just in the U.S., but if we look at other developed markets as well. So our thinking here is the market's backing up to retest the high yield um, that was that was put in a couple of weeks ago in, in, in a fairly chaotic way. It seemed like a blow off type yield top. Our thinking is that you're not going to sustain much of a move through four percent for the 10 year note and you'll set up for a rebound. Um, as we move into the fourth quarter, which is kind of unique for, for anyone in our generation or even the generation before that. Normally, sure. you expect the inverse relationship between equities. But we generally think if it's not the U.S. dollar, it's setting up for a rebound in the fourth quarter. And and our thinking is, as the market rallies, 3 percent is probably as as rich as the 10-year note will get um, for the next quarter or so. All right. That 3 to 4 percent range. Keep, keep an eye on that for sure. Jason Hunter, J.P. Morgan, thank you very much. We appreciate it. To a developing story this morning and several explosions rocking Ukraine's capital city of Kiev for the first time in now months. The shelling coming just one day after Moscow blamed Ukraine for an attack on a bridge that connects Crimea, an annexed region by Russia from the Ukraine, to Russia itself. NBC's Cal Perry joins us now from Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. Cal, what can you tell us about the latest in this development? Hey, Dom. So this was a massive volley of rocket fire striking across the country. At least 83 rockets and or drones reported by Ukrainian defense officials. Some 41 of them shot out of the air. So about a 50 percent rate there of shooting out uh, those rockets and drones. The other half, of course, impacting their targets. Some of those targets, residential targets. You can see there on the left side of your screen or excuse me, on the right side of your screen. That is aftermath from the Capitol here this morning. At least eight people dead in the Capitol. Another two dozen wounded were told that there are still some people stuck under rubble rescue services, obviously trying to make their way to those scenes now. To the eastern part of the country, the city of Kharkiv taking a number of strikes as well. The city of Rivni in the center of the country, at least five dead there. That death toll expected to rise. And all the way to the west of the country, Dom, the city of Lviv, normally a calm city, some hundreds of miles away from the fighting. Strikes taking place there, hitting infrastructure targets. The power in that city at this hour, we understand, is out. Right now, where I am in the capital, the streets are deserted. People are huddled in the subway. The mayor says he expects more attacks to take place. As you said, these are the first strikes in and around the capital since June. That was the last time we had these strikes. This follows that strike on the bridge in Crimea. People expected there to be some kind of reaction, Dom, but this is a very, very large response indeed. So, so Cal, this is a good point, because what I was going to ask you, and you just kind of answered it for us here is how much of this is is in retaliation for what moscow claims to be the attack on that big bridge that connects 
Russia with Crimea. And also, Cal, that the added dynamic here for many reports saying that Ukraine has made sizable advances in taking back territory from Russia in some of those eastern regions near Kharkiv and, and, and elsewhere in the east. Yeah, so if you talk to government officials, you've just nailed it. They believe it's really the combination of both those things. That attack on the bridge on Crimea, so important to the Russian president, personally important to the Russian president. He helped open that bridge by driving a truck across it in 2018. And then these battlefield gains, huge gains being made in the east and in the southern part of the country. We're talking, Dom, at one point last week, in about a four-hour period, that line moved almost eight to ten miles, that line of attack by Ukrainian forces. So they are pushing hard and they're trying to take as much territory as they can get back before the winter months. The concern now is, as the power starts going out in some of these Ukrainian cities, at least two power sites were hit here in Kyiv. The concern is that with the winter months coming, Vladimir Putin is going to start to target these infrastructure sites and make life absolutely miserable in a place where, of course, war is already raging, Tom. A very tense situation, getting even tenser there. Cal Perry, live in Kyiv. Thank you very much. Stay safe, sir. To the fallout over OPEC's production cut decision... Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen criticizing the move by the group, calling it, quote unquote, unhelpful and unwise for the global economy. Speaking with the Financial Times, Yellen adding, while it's uncertain what impact the two million barrel per day cut will end up having, it did not seem appropriate given the economic conditions that we're seeing around the world. OPEC is facing backlash over the decision to slash its output and crude prices are spiking on the back of that decision with U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, also Brent prices, world benchmark prices, both back above 90 bucks a barrel. Brian Sullivan joins us now with more on this price dynamic, the story, and his conversation with Saudi Arabia's energy minister amid OPEC's decision. Brian. Hey, Dom, and good morning. Thank you very much. Yeah, listen, given all the headlines and all the sort of chaos that the meeting and the decision has generated here in the United States, We felt that it was important for our global audience to hear right from the source, and that is Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. Now, he does not give very many interviews, but he did sit down with us and one other network at the OPEC meeting in Vienna, Austria. We met around 8 p.m. local time. That was well after the OPEC cut decision had been made and some of the blowback had already begun. So we sat down for a long-ranging interview, and I began by asking him a very simple question. How would he explain to our audience why they made this decision. Listen. I always talk about this building as a silo where all the political packages and luggages are outside that building with all the diversity that we have and with all the political issues that that are uh, not helpful uh, if we kept it with us into into this building. So that is being kept, and that uh, is carried forward with us with OPEC+. Plus. What is the market-based decision for what happened today? Honestly, it's what I have shown in the the press uh, conference. First of all, we have a testimony, not by ourselves, but by the market, look at what oil is doing over the last almost nine months. And I put that presentation to show what the average prices were. Although I, you remember, I've, I've always hated the, the, the talking about prices and whatever, but for the sake of clarity, we showed 
uh, that January, what our January average prices were and what uh, September prices are, uh, were, and uh, look at the difference. WTI is 1%, uh, Brent is 6%. Look at coal, coal in everywhere, coal or gas, or natural gas, or natural and uh, LNG, you name it. And subsequently, look at electricity. You would see that there is a huge gap between the two, between oil and what is happening elsewhere in that energy complex. So I believe strongly that it is all attributable to what OPEC Plus had done, not only in 22, but 21 and 2020. Had it not been for OPEC Plus and the congregation with the G20 at that time, and you were a witness to this uh, work, to that work, where would have been the industry today? Mm-hmm. We would be ouching. Everybody in this industry will continue to ouch. I would have assumed by now, without OPEC Plus, that if you think that we're running out of supply, I think the market will be running, had run out of supply way uh, before 22, somewhere in mid-21 or what have you. And the ouching and real ouching with oil, not only gas and coal, would have happened even then. But this has been ignored. Now, in today's environment, look at the convoluting uncertainties that are hijacking the so-called expectation scene. Too many things. Such as? Too many things that are happening. We did show in, in the press conference how the things are trending. Foreign, uh, foreign exchange, uh, the uh, interest rates, how are they trending? They're getting higher and higher and higher. GDP growth is descending and descending and descending. Foreign exchange, dollar versus the euro. And you see, you, there are so many things that we have shown today which tells you that there is a trend of a cascading trend. And when you see these things, and you see the, the root cause of it, which is quite a few things that are acting independent of each other. However, they are convoluting in their impact on this market. Not today, but it is, you could see the, you know, the preludes of what may come our way if things are kept unattended to. And because of that, we had to decide to take a preemptive action. I kept saying, I will repeat it, and I'm glad that this opportunity came. You know, OPEC Plus had been successful, effective, because we take matters, we are attentive. Now, how we are attentive? Because we take things, measures in a preemptive way, and we make sure that in order to be pre, to preempt, you have to be assertive. So we have to be assertive, preemptive, and of course, we have to be proactive. If we continue with these four pillars as our operating model, we have to, with all these nuance that you see and these cascading uh, trends, you obviously will be much better taking this preemptive uh, measure 
All right, so that was just part of our interview, Dom, with Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. We did 17 full minutes. It is available up on CNBC.com slash video. I urge people to check it out at the beginning. You know, he's talking about this silo, Dom, because obviously there's a lot of political things that are going on. And they will not talk, not just him, by the way, other OPEC members as well will not talk about the respective politics in their own nation. Try to talk to the Venezuelan minister about Venezuela. They will defer to the national government. These are the energy ministers. So obviously, you know, we try to get into certain things and basically say, listen, this building is sort of a silo. It's kind of a Switzerland-like thing that we're going to focus on energy policy. Obviously, there's been a lot of pushback on that. Viewers can go to that full interview, watch the whole unedited 17 minutes from the OPEC meeting. Brian, only because as an insider, I've been able to kind of see some of the interview right now. It's it's, it's far ranging, by the way, like you said. The one thing I want to key on so our, our, our listeners and viewers here can have a better understanding of the conversation. You also talked about the economy. And you and I both know there are few commodities and assets out there more closely tied to economic growth and contraction than oil. Can you tell us whether or not he made those comments and addressed anything about whether there is a global recession at hand? It sounded like that's what he thought was going to happen, Dom. I mean, you're very perceptive on that. I mean, the the reality is they talked a lot, OPEC did, because remember, it's a group decision. But of course, Prince Abdulaziz sort of fronts, he's not the secretary general, but as the biggest producer, has has the biggest voice there at OPEC. They talked about the Federal Reserve. They talked about central banks, both the United States and around the world. They talked about interest rates. And they talked about the impact of the U.S. dollar. And there was a very real concern, at least from what they're saying, that inflation, rate moves, and currency moves could send global markets down, send the price of oil down. Now, we think lower oil prices here in America filling up with gas we say, good, lower oil prices is what we want. That is obviously not what OPEC wants. They're going to make no bones about that. But what they do say, because they don't like to talk about price, Dom, is they want stability. And he actually showed a slide where natural gas, LNG, and coal had gone up 60, 80, 100 percent. Oil is maybe up a couple of percent from where it was pre-Putin's invasion of Ukraine. What they're looking for, according to Prince Abdulaziz and others at OPEC, is stability. We'd like to see lower prices. What they want is a stable price. You can watch the whole thing. Decide for yourself up on CNBC.com slash video. All right. Big interview there. And of course, go to CNBC.com. Check out the full interview. Amazing content there, Brian. Thank you very much. We'll see you later on today. Coming up on the show, the Biden administration taking new steps to crack down on China's access to critical computer chips. We dive into the geopolitical and investment risks tied to the latest move around semiconductors against Beijing. We're back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Turning now to the semiconductor industry, shares of China-based chip makers getting hit very hard in overseas trading today on the back of that announcement by the Biden administration Friday of new export rules on those chips. The Biden administration expanding its list of technology that requires a special license to be sold to places like China in a bid to curb its military ambitions. Now, over the weekend, Taiwan, a major chip production hub, signaling its semi-companies will follow the new U.S. rules. Chip stocks here in the U.S. facing deep losses amid these developments on Friday. As you can see there, the semiconductor index ETFs were down big. They fell 6% on trading on Friday. For more, let's bring in DeWardrick McNeil, 
Longview Global Managing Director and Senior Policy Analyst there. He's also a CNBC contributor. DeWardrick, uh, we always turn to you for some of these bigger picture macro geopolitical issues. Is this battle between the U.S. and China over technology, specifically chips, going to get worse? Good morning, Dom. Thanks for having me. Listen, I think what the administration did on Friday was a significant strategic move on uh, their part, banning uh, logic chips, uh, DRAM uh, memory chips, NAND flash memory chips. It shows me, Dom, that the administration is very serious about continuing to deliberately, methodically, and target uh, their um, uh, chip strategy. So I suspect that with many more tools in the toolkit, we're going to see the administration try to ensure that China is not able to acquire this technology on the open market, but also, Dom, not able to produce it domestically at home, at least in the short term. So I think the administration is certainly going to continue to press forward with this. They've shown real concerns about China's military prowess and about how that prowess is uh, technological prowess and how that prowess is being applied to military end use. So I don't think this is done yet, uh, Dom. I think that we're going to see, uh, particularly from the U.S., some more moves. But also, Dom, we don't know how China's going to respond to this. Uh, so we're waiting to see. Uh, but there's a lot of, of turbulence still left here if you're in this sector. We have some near to medium term precedent on this kind of di- dynamic, this relationship, this conflict between Beijing and Washington. Now, th- the reason I bring it up is because there are policy undertones, if not outright policy overtones, if you will, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, seemingly in concert with each other with regard to what the relationship is between us and China. It's not very good. It's certainly confrontational in a very frenemy type way. We're the two biggest economies in the world. So with that being said, this if this does get worse for semiconductors, then what does it mean for the industry here in the U.S.? The, the market value of these companies domestically losing billions and billions every single day. That's a good question, Dom. Look, I think when you look at this particular rule, the administration was concerned about some of the potential supply chain impacts. They put in place a temporary general license for uh, companies uh, that are producing certain types of uh, chips uh, that's not destined for China, but for other places to continue for a short period of time. But look, you're right, Dom. I, I think if you're in this space, uh, you should start to look for alternative uh, markets. I just I don't see how uh, companies in this space with a robust presence in China will have any sort of long term future here, given the significance of semiconductor chips for both the U.S. and China. And so I would look, quite frankly, at places in Southeast Asia. I think that what they will find is some real policy tailwind and some support for those types of moves. But to be honest with you, Dom, I just don't see how uh, companies in the high-end chip space will have a long-term future in China. It's a big conversation right now because so many people, DeWardrick, look towards those chips as a possible indicator of market sentiment. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate your thoughts. Always great to see you. Thank you, Dom. As we head out to break, throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating our teammates, contributors, and business leaders as well. Here is restaurant brand CEO Jose Seal. I think the story uh, of the, the, the Cuban uh, immigrant is, is not well known. It's a pretty compelling story um, of 
of difficulties, challenges, uh, leaving everything behind, not for economic reasons, but but for political reasons. For example, my, my mom came as a 14-year-old. Uh, she had to leave everything behind, became a very successful educator, later in life became a, a PhD and and taught in universities. And uh, and like that, there are many other examples of, uh, of very successful uh, Cuban immigrants. And so I, I think the story is one of, of difficulty and challenges that were overcome uh, because of perseverance, because of grit, because of optimism, and, and because of a tremendous work ethic. Okay, we've got some breaking news right now concerning a figure, personality that many people in this industry know about. The Nobel Prize for Economics in 2022 this year has now gone to three people, one of whom is Ben Bernanke, former Federal Reserve chairman during the financial crisis, also Douglas Diamond and Philip Dybvig. They are being recognized, the Nobel Committee says, for being for work that has been crucial to the subsequent research that has enhanced our understanding of banks bank regulation, banking crises, and how financial crises should be managed. They also go on to say that Bernanke analyzed the Great Depression of the 30s, the worst economic crisis in modern history. Among other things, he showed how bank runs were a decisive factor in the crisis becoming so deep and prolonged. So again, breaking news, Ben Bernanke, former Federal Reserve chairman during the financial, in the wake of the financial crisis back in 08 and 09, is now awarded the Nobel Prize in economics, he and two colleagues, for their work on banking and crises. Well, returning to markets, futures right now indicating what could be another lower open, but marginally so. The Dow's implied roughly lower by about, call it nine, oh, now it's actually higher by eight points, so a marginally higher open. Joining me now is Tiffany McGee, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Pivotal Advisors, also a CNBC contributor. Uh, what's your best single trade, do you think, in this environment heading into this week? My best single trade. Well, first, I'm looking at a couple of things, Dom, uh, this week. So number one, of course, CPI comes out on Thursday. Uh, and I think if, if course, CPI declines, we're going to see uh, the market react in some way. Um, so just, you know, for, for everyone looking to, uh, you know, thinking about, like, what they may purchase this week um, or sell this week, I think that that's going to be um, – a major piece of um, data. The second is bank earnings. And so, of course, you know, I, I love bank earnings because they really provide insight into the financial health of consumers. Like, are consumers paying off their credit card debts? Are they carrying balances? But especially since consumer uh, uh, spending is 70% of GDP. But I'm, we own, um, uh, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, which report later on this week. And so I'll be looking, um, to see, you know, if they're, if they have any misses. These are core, um, staple pieces in our portfolio. So we're going to own them for the long term. Uh, so I'm going to be paying attention to how the market reacts to their earnings and see if there's an opportunity for a dip for me to buy. Cause I do expect revenues, um, to be, to be down, especially, um, with regards to like mortgages, like by the way, like the thirty-year fixed uh, mortgage rate is now at six point eight percent on, and like last year was at three point two five. So I definitely expect that to hit the revenues of of some of these banks. Um, but if there was a single stock uh, that 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 I like right now, um, I, I sent you guys some notes about how I really think that now is a compelling time to buy growth. Um, and so Salesforce is one for me that is uh, a tech staple. We like to invest along themes. Um, and so when I think about Salesforce, um, they dominate this uh, Salesforce automation space. And so their customer 360 platform, uh, we really think is going to be a competitive advantage um, going forward. But for all of the talk 
that we and all the attention that Salesforce gets, they only have 30% of the market share. And so this market, their, their addressable market is expected to double um, and double in growth uh, each year going forward. So they've got lots of runway. All right. Tiffany that was McGee. a lot, Don. Tiffany McGee <laughs> with a single trade CRM. Thank you very much. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Breaking news and all. Squawk Box picks up the coverage coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.